Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. Welcome to the Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel comic series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks, except when we talk about Spider-Man. You heard right, this week, Brian's in the doghouse and Excalibur 53, The Litter, co-starring a certain web-slinger from the town across the pond. If this doesn't boost sales or... Um, Listenership, nothing will. Excalibur number 53 was originally published in August 1992, and the creative team is Scott Lobdell on writing, James Fry on pencils, Christopher Ivey on inks, Glynis Oliver on colors, Michael Heisler on letters, and Terry Kavanaugh on editing. Spider-Man and his amazing friends. I am super excited to talk Spidey this week with a very exciting guest who I will introduce in a moment. But first, your usual roommates. I am Dr. Anna Papard. You can find me lots of academic and popular places talking sex and gender and pop culture and comics and superheroes. I am also the unofficial PR manager of Kurt Wagner and... He's not in this one. Not even a little. Mm. I'll have to make some calls about that. But in the meantime, let's continue with our introductions. Mav, please remind our listeners of your achievements. Hi, my name is Christopher Maverick, but you can call me Mav. And I am a co-host of another podcast called Vox Popcast. And I talk about sex and gender and class and race and in 20th century pop culture, especially um, comic books and movies and professional wrestling and TV shows. And I would like to spend the rest of the day telling you about Mark. Mark was my freshman year roommate in college for the first two weeks before I changed rooms. But I want you to know that he's left a lasting impression on my life for the last 30 years. I don't actually remember his last name anymore, but I know he was an architecture major and he was a nice enough guy. We're, we're very different. I don't remember anything else about him, but he's the most important person in my life. Really, I, I'm just going to stick with that. <laughs> that's the story <laughs> do you have a photo of you and him in a diner with no, his girlfriend <laughs> no no and I, and I and i definitely don't have a photo of him and his girlfriend in front of me that he packed for me and i kept for the last 30 years that would be weird wouldn't it <laughs> i wouldn't know okay <laughs> andrew please recall your many accolades hello i'm dr andrew demand i'm project lead for the claremont run a cool, mostly Twitter-based deep dive into Chris Claremont's X-Men work. And I am a lecturer at St. Jerome's University, which I like never talk about. So I thought I would throw that out there today, um, okay. where I design and teach many courses on comics, including sexuality in comics, the superhero, manga, graphic narrative, and a course on research methodologies as applied to comics. So I'm very slowly working my way up to being a one-man comic studies department. Mm. <laughs> I love it. I didn't know about that methodologies class. That sounds awesome, actually. Fall 2022. <laughs> Should we all transfer? And yes. then you and Anne roll in this bowl and just like, and the two of us will just sit in the front row and uh, it's like just, just constantly, professor, professor, and just like be the smart ass kids that are always in the. Because <laughs> I totally want that. I totally do too. That would be super helpful. I mean, my scholarship on comics is really slapdash, but. Uh... <laughs> Anyway, we are joined this week by a scholar who knows a lot about Peter Parker and the objectivist artist who made him. The pod is thrilled to welcome Dr. Zach Cruzy. Welcome, Zach. Hello. 
I'll tell our listeners a little bit more about you. So Zach Cruzy is the author of Mysterious Travelers, Steve Ditko and the Search for a New Liberal Identity, recently released by University Press of Mississippi. He is also a scholar of comics, film, and American literature and culture. His scholarly work has appeared in Inks, the Journal of the Comic Studies Society, Source, Notes on the History of Art and Critique, Studies in Contemporary Fiction, and in other journals and numerous edited collections. As a comics creator, his strip, Mystery Solved, appeared in Skeptical Inquirer magazine, and he was the founder and sole operator of Appleseed Comics and Art Convention, a creator and community-driven comics event held in Fort Wayne, Indiana. He has previously served as the academic coordinator for the Michigan State University Comics Forum, as the managing editor for the Journal of Popular Culture, and as the marketing director for the largest comics retailer in the U.S. So many accolades, Zach. (laughs) I know, this is a lot of stuff. We are so lucky to have you with us. And I, of course, want to talk about your book, but let's do comics origin stories first, as we often do on this podcast. What started you on the road to loving comics, Zach? What's your comics origin story? Um, So my first honest recollection of having a comic book was Batman 402. Uh, Max Max Collins wrote it, Jim Starlin drew it, and on the cover, I don't remember anything that happened on the inside of that book. I have no... I was like four or five years old, but I remember staring at that cover for hours and hours and hours because there are two men dressed as Batman strangling one another and melting just my my toddler brain. I couldn't figure out (laughs) how how these two men could both be Batman and how they could kill one another. Mind-blowing stuff. So, um, So that was the first, that's the first comic I remember owning and just staring at. But before that, you know, I had book and record sets and, uh, you know, the uh, the Secret Wars toys and, you know, I was watching cartoons on TV, Spider-Man and Super Friends and all that jazz. So, but that but that Batman issue, that's just forever just burned into my mind. <laughs> I love that. What started you on the road to studying comics? Has it always been part of your academic practice? Yeah. Yeah, always. In fact, that was the reason I went back to grad school because I really... I didn't like mess up, mess up, but like when I was an undergrad in the early 2000s, like that's what I wanted to do and was given the impression that that was just not a thing that could or should be done. Uh, So I didn't. And then I went and did other things and ended up working in comics. You know, I worked at, you know, a comic store and, you know, convention and making stuff. But then, you know, I was just before I turned 30, I decided to go back and teach. And I was teaching at a community college. I said, hell with it. I'm just teaching comics. And let's see, let's see who stops me. And then yeah. no one stopped me. Uh, and then, then I turned that into into going to grad school to specifically work on comic scholarship because by that point, lots of people were already doing it. The the field was there, and fortunately for those because of those folks, I was able to build an academic life and career out of it. Awesome. I love it. And then Michigan State being an optimum place to do that. We have had people from the program from that program on the pod before. Yeah, it was a great place. Uh, and, and that was that was part of the reason I went. Th- I went there because of the collection. Like I knew about the collection before I knew about anything yeah. else. What I didn't know was like when I got there, when I would meet Randy Scott, how amazing Randy was. And like, you know, Randy was in the Weathermen and just like this radical guy, like in the 60s. I'm like, really? OK, let's let's <laughs> go with this. This, this is also up my alley. Um <laughs> But uh, but when I got there, part of the reason I came there was specifically to work on the you know, work in the collection, but also on the comics forum because I was leaving my own convention behind in order to go to mm-hmm. grad school. I could I, I ran Appleseed for six years by myself. I couldn't do I couldn't continue to do that and a PhD. Like I already tried doing it while I had a master while I was getting a master's and you know more or less wanted to die every day yeah. <laughs> too much. But I went up there and I got to scratch that itch by working on the forum and doing more academic stuff for the forum, which is which is an amazing time. It's a great program and great people and you know terrific pop culture history there. I've only gotten to go to the Michigan State Comics Forum once, but it was a wonderful time the time that I was there. And then the next year was the first pandemic year, so I have not been back. But hopefully someday the Comic Studies Society is at Michigan State this year. I think right. Yep, it is. It is. Uh, I worked Julian Chambliss, who is now the academic coordinator for the mm-hmm. Comics Forum. Uh, he and I worked really hard to bring CSS, th- CSS there for that. So, so yeah, it'll be there every three years now. They'll be for the next ten years. Oh, every perfect. three years, CSS will be at will be at MSU. So awesome. Yeah, I'm hoping to submit something at the time of recording. The deadline's tomorrow, so I'm working on it. <laughs> So let's talk about your book a little bit. And I'm going to essentially ask you to give us the extended elevator pitch, which I always feel terrible about asking because explaining your book in a few minutes is an awful, awful thing to ask of anybody. But I'll try to make it a little bit more specific. So I threw in that little joke earlier about objectivism, but I know that your book actually argues that the Randian influence in Ditko's work is somewhat overstated or at least misunderstood, perhaps. Um, And you see 
his work reflecting a variety of influences, which you group under the umbrella of mystic liberalism. So that was a lot of terms I just threw out there. Tell us about it. What is mystic liberalism and how do we see that reflected in Ditko's work? Sure. So, okay. Um, So the, the the quick and dirty version of this is that what I'm defining as mystic liberalism is the co-opting of the new thought movement into emerging post-war neoliberal capitalism and uh, sort of the white collarification of of work, right? So in popular terms, if we're thinking about new thought, there are lots of people who contributed to this. Very few were politically conservative, but most were liberal or leftist. But when we think about those books in historical terms, like in what, who would qualify as sort of a mystic liberal besides Ditko, like someone like Dale Carnegie or Norman Vincent okay. Peale, you know, win friends and influence people, that sort of thing, power of positive thinking, those are those fit in that category because by the power of your mind, you can positively affect not just the world around you, but you can gain success at work, right? And you can gain success at a very specific kind of work that fits into this sort of changing mode of liberalism, right? In that sort of Milton Friedman, you know, post, post-war capitalist uh, type type frame. So that so that's a really sort of strange and interesting thing that's happening in, in that moment. And among the people that are a part of that and really popularizing it is, in fact, someone like Ayn Rand and her one-time heir and lover, Nathaniel Brandon. They, they were certainly invested in, in those conversations for, for, you know, in all sorts of complicated ways. But it's not just them. It's happening all across the culture. And Ditko's work is, you know, incorporating that and responding to it in a very sort of precise way way. He would never identify himself as a mystic because he had a very distinct view of what he thought mysticism was, um, which is not actually in line with how religious scholars define mysticism, but it's how it's how he felt about mysticism. He also wouldn't define himself as a skeptic, but he certainly imagined himself to be a rationalist in contemporary parlance. You know, skepticism and rationalism seem to work together, right? So his terms are always very clear, even if he was out of step with traditional usages, put it that way. So what's interesting about Ditko's work is because he gives us this precise view into this world, he's also sort of unfairly lumped in with someone like Rand because like a lot of people who are in, who are influenced by what I'm identifying as this strand of liberal thought, he's reading Rand, right? He read Rand. He was, you know, he was certainly aware of her. He was aware of basically everything that she wrote. He was very much aware of Nathaniel Brandon, but he never once identifies himself as an objectivist. And only one time in print did he ever say objectivism defines this particular character in Mr. A. But then when he went back and re- he went back and revised that text and to eliminate any hint of objectivism at all. So for him, he's very much his, his own thinker, like he is a Ditkoist, right? Which, okay, I'm willing, I'm willing, to, I'm willing to accept that. That's fine. You imagine that you are an independent operator, fine. But your ideas still fit within some kind of historical framework. Uh, and they are responding to things that are happening around you. And you are responding to things that happen around you. So that's where I'm going with, with that, with the mystic liberal stuff. We see it We see it in a lot of people, not just in Ditko, right? And not just in Peel and not just in Dale Carnegie. But like Ronald Reagan is really, really deeply invested in this stuff. He loves it uh, and quotes it at length in a number of speeches. Um, he goes back and quotes these new thought practitioners all the time while also applying a very particular kind of liberal capitalist politics. So uh, so it's not just Ditko alone. He's operating within this, within this network. And where he gets sort of short shrift, I guess, is that because he did not really make any effort to be a public figure, a lot of things just sort of get heaped upon him. Among those things is because he, you know, was interested in objectivism and and applied some of the ideas, there was this inherent assumption like, oh, well, he is an objectivist. Uh, and similarly, things like, well, he is a recluse. No, he was not. He was never a recluse. Just because someone doesn't want to talk to you personally, <laughs> right? Like, or just because someone take, takes their job seriously and, and wants their job, wants their artwork to speak for themselves, that doesn't make them necessarily a recluse. He was hanging out in Times Square. He had an office in Times Square. He had an open door policy. He answered his door for people. He answered thousands and thousands of letters and took phone calls. I know this because I am one of the maniacs that knocked on his door in that <laughs> So, so, you know, he, he, he was not all of these things that people said that he was, he was, he very much worked hard to be his own person. And because of that, 
uh, I felt as a scholar and someone interested in these ideas and this sort of strange sort of milieu of things that are happening, right? I, I'm very interested in like mysticism and, and the occult and how that and the political applications of that stuff. Because he's existing in this sort of space, I thought it was necessary to just take him at his word and say, okay, Steve, you are your own person. You are your, your own thinker. What does your work actually say? And by taking a close look at it, I think we get a much more nuanced and balanced perspective of the ideas that he's developing over, you know, a, a 65 year career from 53 up to 2000, you know, right up to, to the day that he died, he was making new comics. And in all of those comics, we can trace out how he imagines the world in a very specific sort of approach to philosophy, personal politics, and, and any number of other categories. So, so that's, that's, you know, that's, I guess that's a little longer than I had anticipated, but that's what the book's exploring. Like, how do, how do we see this, right? And specifically because it, it's Ditko the artist, how do we see it? And he complained about this a lot in his letters and essays. Like very often he felt his work was corrupted mm -hmm. by Stan Lee or by other editors or by uh, script writers who, who took his notes and and decided to get cute with him and he thought was were being a little bit too clever. He, you know, railed against that frequently. So so much of so much of what I've written about here is digging in with what do the visuals tell us? And then when we know for certain that it's his specific text, what does the text then also tell us? But it's, it, the base, the baseline set of information is always from the visuals. How do we see this happening? Oh, I love that. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I want to talk more about that. And I want to talk more about how this specifically factors into sort of his vision and idea of Spider-Man. But I got to ask you about meeting Ditko first. How mm -hmm. did that go? How was the experience of meeting the man himself? What did you talk about? Uh, well, some of that's like Fight Club information. Um, so, uh, or under Fair fight fields. but, but I can tell you that, um, when I knocked on the door and he answered the door, you know, I can't, I can't rightly say why he, he answered it or who or what he expected, <laughs> but when he opened the door and he saw that it was me and not what he expected, he, he made a point to let it be known that he was unhappy, um, <laughs> uh, cause he rolled his eyes so hard that I swear to you, his entire <laughs> body moved with it, like in a complete <laughs> And he goes, what do you want? <laughs> and um, so I told him, I was like, you know, we've exchanged letters. When I was working at, at the comic book store, you know, uh, at DCBS, uh, I, I made a point to buy all of his books. And I bought thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars of, of Ditko stock from him and Robin Snyder. I was like, so, you know, you know me from these things. I'm just here because if I didn't come here, I would regret this for the rest of my life. And uh, and I told him, I said, <laughs> the best part of it was I said, uh, I said, you know, Re discovering your work, reading your work, set me on a path that put me here and has allowed me to, to do a lot of things. And he, and I said, you know, it, it changed my life. And he gets that stuff all the time, right? Yeah. And I got that stuff all the time. And he, he looked at me dead in the eyes and he goes, yeah, well, all lives change. I go, oh, my. Like, you know what? You, you got me on that one. I was, you know, I, was it, this, I thought this might have been a moment, but you got me on that one. You're right. Um, but, you know, specifically your work changed mine. And then after that, he, <laughs> he lightened up a little bit and, you know, we had a very brief chat. Um, he was like 89 at the time. So when it became clear that he was done and needed to go back and sit down, I thanked him for his time and wished him well. And then I went off and was like basically in a daze. <laughs> um, yeah. I took, he shut the door and I turned around and like, I'm not sure like what happened to time, but the whole world just washed away. And then when I came back to, I was sitting on a bench in Columbus circle and, uh, which is pretty far away from, from where his office is. And then, uh, and then it all just sort of hit me and you know, the rest, the rest is history, I suppose. Oh man, that's amazing. Okay, let's talk about Ditko's vision of Spider-Man a little bit because we're going to be talking about Spidey today when we talk about the actual issue. But how do you see, if you see, you know, I'm assuming that you do because you already talked about this being reflected in the art. And of course, we know that Ditko did a lot of writing on Spider-Man. So how do you see some of his politics reflected in sort of that original conception of Spider-Man? And did you, do you see that carrying through into other people's versions of the character? Oh, for sure. Absolutely. You know, his politics and his philosophy, they come through in Spider-Man first, you know, in the sort of James Deaniness of Spider-Man, right? Which is, I mean, we can mention that in this issue too that we're talking about. But, you know, as as an outsider, as someone who is on his own, you know, it, it, it's wrong to say, I don't think it's, well, I don't want to say it's wrong. I think it's, I think it is unnuanced to say that <laughs> Peter Parker is a stand-in for Steve Ditko. He's not. 
right? Mm -hmm. um, but lots of people make that claim. It, he's not. But Peter Parker is sort of a stand-in for Ditko's ideas and the development of a person and how a, how a teenage person can look at the world and recognize that they are, in fact, different. And then how do they navigate that space when they are outside of social networks when they are outside of political networks when they're outside of basically everything right how do you how do you look within yourself and find out who you are and who you want to be and how do you uh, unburden yourself from you know the weight of being other and and that really plays out throughout the series and there are other things in there that, that i think are a little more biographical than ditko would admit or even maybe some some family members might admit betty brant seems to be a pretty clear stand-in for flo steinberg at points who Ditko apparently had a crush on the, all of the stuff with Jameson is a, I mean, when Ditko is writing Jameson, like he's clearly trashing Stan, right? Yeah. Uh, so, and, and, you know, in Peter's relationship with, with Jameson, you know, as, as the freelancer who is unappreciated and his work is frequently manipulated and outright undercut by his boss, right at the at the publisher i mean there's some pretty obvious like frustrations that are working out there right but those sort of practical things notwithstanding the, the character of peter parker is this is not a stand-in for Ditko so much as, he, like I said, he's a stand-in for the philosophy and how you become your own person. And, and, and you see it play out, you know, the doubts that he has and, you know, when he's ready to quit or he's not ready to quit or the stuff at home with Aunt May. But ultimately, the defining moment, moment for all of this is the one that I think is probably the defining moment for anyone who's read those first, you know, 30-something issues of Spider-Man is in that Master Planner story arc. And in issue 33, in the lifting sequence, that thing that Stan yeah. Lee tried to steal credit for, right? But it had nothing to do with, because Stan, what they weren't even talk. Stan and Steve were not even talking to each other at that point, right? They had no face-to-face -face communication at all. Stan had no idea what Ditko was turning in. He would just get the pages and, and the notes and go, well, I don't know. So in that master planner story and in that lifting sequence, when he lifts, when he is underneath all of that rubble, that rubble for Ditko is symbolic of all of the weight that Peter has on top of him. And the fact that Peter has brought the building down upon himself and created this problem for himself in certain ways because he was too emotional is also reflective of the things that Ditko is working through in his philosophy, right? Like he recognizes something in himself and in the human condition that like a lot of our troubles, or at least he believes a lot of our troubles are things that we bring upon ourselves because we are not slowing down and thinking about things calmly and rationally. We get too emotional. And when we get too emotional, then we, you know, we create circumstances that are very difficult for us to get out of, right? I mean, so for me, like the phrase I use sometimes is like, at a certain point, there are just too many dishes in the kitchen sink and you can't, you can't just go in and do them. But what Ditko is saying is that at a certain point, you just have to go in and do them. And so Peter Parker in that moment, he's doing the dishes, right? He, and the ebbs and flows and the emotional ups and downs that you get from just from the page layout alone, like the this change in size of the panels alone. Oh, it's a be beautiful, beautiful. Yeah, there's so much emotional. There's so much emotional weight in, in just the in just the layouts, right? And when he talks to Uncle Ben and he he unburdens himself from the weight of guilt, right, and the weight of the past, and he realizes he has to move forward, and he finally frees himself of all of those things. Like that is a huge moment, not just for Peter Parker, not just for Ditko's philosophy, but for anyone that came after it. I firmly believe that everyone that read that story decided that that's what all superheroes were, because I don't think anybody was telling stories like that before that point. So when Peter lifts all that stuff up, you know for a fact that the reason that this character is, is heroic is not because of his strength. It's not the gadgets. It's not the costume. It's his heart. It's who he is on the inside. That's an, that is an amazing shift in the way to think about a superhero. It's not about the rich guy who has billions of dollars and punches clowns in the face. It's not about the alien sun god who has unlimited superpowers. It's about the human condition and the human spirit and the human heart to do things. And the fact that in the costuming, Ditko made the conscious choice to cover all of Spider-Man. Yeah, I know. That, that's, his, that's his decision, right? Mm -hmm. Also indicates to the reader that he is you and you are him. And if he can do this, you can do this. That's that's huge, right? And that's that's the entire that's the premise of what I think is the best Spider-Man movie, which is Spider-Verse. That that's that's the entire premise. That's the thing that drives it forward. But that's also the thing that even though I'm increasingly frustrated and dissatisfied with MCU stuff, like that's also the thing that has been selected to drive the MCU forward, right? That that is that is Steve Rogers in the alley saying, "I can do this all day," right? Everybody after Ditko steals that and then applies it to whatever character they're working on at the moment because it is a, it is a powerful intellectual and emotional appeal. And that's why Spidey's the flagship character.
right? When it, before that was, was the FF, right? Ditko changes everything uh, in that moment as it relates to American superheroes. So yes, I, I, I think, I think everybody steals it and, 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 and rightfully so. The difference is I'm not so sure that when everybody steals it, they steal it for the right reasons, but whether I'm not sure that everybody steals it because they are really looking at this and seeing like the three-year buildup of this moment. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then after that point, Peter's not only unburdened himself from all of those things and, you know, his, his heart has won out, but also he's also unburdened himself from, from the desire to be loved by people who won't love him back. Right. He doesn't, he, <laughs> yeah. he, he doesn't want to be a part of, he doesn't care about Flash Thompson. He's not worried about any of that stuff anymore. It's all over. He's just, he is who he's going to be. That's huge. That is an, that's an enormous thing to, to experience as a reader, as a young person, and just as someone who is invested in art, right? In popular culture. I think Ditko changed everything with that character. Yeah, I do not disagree with any of that. And I'm just like listening to you like in Rapture, just wanting to talk about that scene instead of this comic. But <laughs> but I also want to ask you a question about the political side of it. And, you know, the ways that Rand gets linked to, in particular in the contemporary moment, conservative social politics and that type of thing. I mean, is that conflict present in the work? I mean, people sometimes reduce it to Stan Lee having sort of a liberal point of view and Steve Ditko's politics being a bit more complicated. Like, is that present in that era or is that just sort of how these ways of thinking have evolved in subsequent eras? Because you do bring up Reagan as being sort of a follower of this line of thought. So, yeah. yeah. Well, Ditko, I I read him, he's libertarian, right? So in the early, so in the early and mid 1960s, when the libertarian movement is becoming a thing, they're specifically not conservative. Um, they're, They're something else, even though... I, I think we as intellectuals and people that think about this stuff, we all recognize that there is a real sort of reactionary strand and some problematic stuff that comes out of those politics, right? I, I, I wouldn't deny that at all. But Ditko does not imagine himself to be in any way conservative. Uh, he imagines himself to be pretty specifically libertarian as it relates to matters of war, as it relates to matters of religion, as it relates to matters of drug use and on down the line. You know, I'm not so sure that, and this is part of this is part of the thinking with the book too. I'm just not so sure that it's such a great idea to impose 21st century interpretations and applications of these figures onto a 19 onto this onto this work that is, exists in a different context. And, and that's where he's publishing his ideas, right? So things like the Avenging World and Mr. A. I mean, they they first appear. I mean, they appear in Wit's End, the Wallywood Creator Own Magazine, but they also appear in Reason Magazine. And and Reason is you know appealing to. I mean, it's a libertarian publication, but they're talking, it's an anti-war magazine. It's a pro-drug magazine. It's a, you know, they're, they're in favor of legalizing prostitution and, you know, and on down the line. So, you know, and that's, that's where these ideas are appearing. So I'm not, I'm not so sure that lumping him in with political conservatives is such a, is such a great idea, even though there's lots of overlap, right? In, in the same way that like Milton Friedman ends up working for the Reagan administration, right? But does Friedman have the same political views as Reagan? No, but they care, but they, but they're linked by capitalism, right? Which creates all kinds of problems. Without getting too far into this, I mean, it doesn't take too much for us to look at history and see the ways in which liberal capitalists are going to side with the fascists before they side with, <laughs> before they side with their, their stated convictions, right? So, I'm I'm wondering if is with with someone like Ditko, is he? I would argue this is true even of Rand, but I think Ditko is maybe a better proof of it. The fact it, uh, it's the failings of trying to reduce even 21st century politics to a binary, right? Like, so like if you've actually read Atlas Shrugged, and I do not recommend anybody does, <laughs> but, if actually do, but if you actually do go out and read it, you'll notice that probably the most famous American follower of like, you know, of Rand in the last several years is Paul Ryan, but it does not match his politics at all. He latched onto one specific part of this book that he personally really likes. And so now we've retrofitted everything Rand wrote to Paul Ryan politics, and she would not like him, which is not to say that she's right. She's not, but is that, is that sort of the problem with Ditko? Like you're, you're trying to retrofit a very complex eighth dimensional space to liberal or conservative. One or the two, you have to choose. Right. Yeah. I think that, that, I think that's exactly, that's exactly it. Right. I mean, and, and we know that Rand was not a great fan of Ronald Reagan. She she didn't like Barry Goldwater, who was arguably the most libertarian Republican candidate, you know, certainly of that generation. She was not a fan of conservatism in any way. She also didn't like libertarians. 
Right. So she had her own political uh, she party. It's exactly as you're saying. I mean, people go back and they pick and choose from these things. We have to recognize that, oh, they're picking and choosing. And it's not it's not an all or nothing deal. It's like religion, right? <laughs> people pick and choose with that stuff. So yeah, it's, 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 it's very, very messy. A lot of times, I don't even think Rand knows what she's talking about. <laughs> <laughs> like, but I'm serious, especially as it relates to the mystical stuff. Like, mm. if you ask, if you ask an objectivist whether Rand was a materialist, you know, objectives, like everything is in the real world. That's what it is. She would, they would say yes, but they are paying no attention to all the, all the attention she gave to something like self-esteem, which is the thing that is specifically linked to mind power in the, in the 20th century. She's interested in the same stuff that Jung is interested in all of these things. Right. But she's going to say that like, no, you know, I don't, I don't deal with mysticism. Yes, you do. <laughs> you just don't <laughs> understand what you're saying. <laughs> Oh, geez. Okay, we need to talk about this comic book. I love this conversation so much, and I could linger here. But yeah, let's talk about Brian Braddock fighting some shape-shifting dogs. Um, <laughs> trying to intellectualize that. <laughs> no, but before we do that, I'm just going to ask quickly for the benefit of our listeners. We already talked about this beforehand, but I believe you're going in cold to Excalibur in general, right, Zach? Yeah, more or less. I have a few scattered copies or a few scattered issues of this somewhere, but I know that I bought them and you'll like this. I know that I specifically bought them at the time because they had Nightcrawler on the cover. Mm. Those choice. are the only ones I have. Always makes a good cover. <laughs> this is a good comic. I mean, the pleasant. This is a good comic for someone with no background on the series. Yeah. It is. Perfect. Perfect fill-in issue. You don't really need that context. We will talk about Brian's characterization a little bit, but let's get into it. So I know we've got lots of lovely listeners reading along with the pod. I'm sure you'd all be better roommates than Brian Braddock. But as always, let's start today's jot down memory lane with a plot summary. Excalibur number 53 opens in Braddock Manor, where Megan is being playfully pursued by Brian while holding aloft a treasured find, a photo album featuring pictures of Brian in his awkward years. They play fight over the album, taking off into the night sky before finding a quiet grow to get cozy. For a moment, it looks as though they might use this rare sliver of privacy to pursue further intimacies, but instead, inspired by a photo of himself with Peter Parker and Mary Jane Watson, Brian decides to tell Megan a story set between the panels of Marvel Team-Up number 65 and 66. I'm sure all of our listeners recall, Brian Braddock made his stateside <laughs> debut in Marvel Team-Up number 65 from 1977, written by Chris Claremont with art by John Byrne. In that comic, Brian becomes Peter Parker's roommate. He also, according to today's story, learns a few things about being a hero from Peter and from his alter ego, Spider-Man. In a flashback, we see Spidey mentoring Captain Britain and Peter getting increasingly fed up with Brian. One morning, Peter comes home to find the apartment trashed by Brian's drunken antics. Brian offers to pay for a maid, and Peter says that's not the point. Later, Peter and Brian have lunch with Mary Jane, sitting next to some very loud, very rude, quote-unquote, foreign exchange students. Brian tries to fight the German leader of the crew, but is held back by Brian and by the diner owner, who kicks the exchange students out. Later that night, on the roof of the Chrysler building, a still sauced, Captain Britain arrives late to his meeting with Spider-Man. Spidey asks him, school guidance counselor style, if he has anything he'd like to talk about. Embarrassed, Brian refuses to answer and flies away. But he doesn't get far before spotting a robbery at a biotech lab. Captain Britain swoops into action, belatedly realizing that the burglars are the foreign exchange students from earlier. As he's caught in this realization, the students begin to transform into big, scary dog-human hybrids forming a group that calls themselves, you guessed it, the Litter. The Litter, believing themselves a superior species, plan to genetically alter the rest of humanity to be like them. Brian struggles to hold his own against the litter, but thankfully, Spider-Man shows up to help. If Brian quickly makes things worse again, accidentally hitting one member of the litter too hard, seriously injuring her. The fight stops immediately, and Spider-Man calls an ambulance. Captain Britain, ashamed, flies away into the night. When Brian arrives back at the apartment he shares with Peter early the next morning, his bags are packed. Peter is kicking him out. Peter tells Brian he has a drinking problem and doesn't take responsibility for his actions. Brian claims Peter's words sunk in and that he started to change his ways thereafter, which isn't <laughs> true, but whatever. The issue concludes in the present where Megan congratulates Brian's character building with a kiss. Okay, so uh, just for context, I mentioned the Marvel team-up thing. Brian and Peter do become roommates during that storyline, but we never actually saw in those comics how they stopped being roommates. So this story ties into that, and there are a couple of little visual callbacks, that giant stuffed dog thing that's in their apartment that's a visual callback to the original story. But other than that, the stories aren't that linked. Um, so yeah, uh, we've mentioned that team up on the podcast before, because that's also the story involving rescuing Courtney Ross from Arcade's Murder World, which ties in with Excalibur number five and six. 
or four and five, I believe. Anyway, let's talk about the issue at hand, and we'll start with some first impressions, and we'll come back to you for it first, Zach. Um, how are you feeling about this issue? Anything good, bad, or strange that you want to talk about right off the bat? Uh, I actually really liked it. It felt very much of its moment and exactly the kinds of comics I was reading in the early 90s and through the mid-90s, picking up back issues of stuff. It's a it's a Scott Lobdell book, and it's just, it's a, <laughs> it's a lot of, it's a lot of Lobdell, right? So anybody that, read, <laughs> anybody that read those, I think, is probably going to feel somewhat at home with this. And I guess, you know, one thing I wanted to mention briefly, but we were talking about this before we started, but like the art looks like they're trying very hard to fit within the current mold and what was popular with uh, someone like uh, Mark Bagley. It looks very Bagley-esque, and I'm not sure if that's the pencils or the inks, but the ways in which the the people are, are rendered look, man, so much like Mark Bagley drew them. I, I was surprised to learn that this was not a Bagley comic, to be honest. Yeah, that's interesting. And that lines up time-wise with Bagley's work on New Warriors, I believe. We yeah. talked about that a little bit before. Yeah, New Warriors was very much a in, an in-vogue book at the time. Bagley does the first 25 issues, which culminates the month before this comes out. Yeah, so that makes sense. Um, mm -hmm. Can I come to you for some first impressions, Andrew? Because we haven't heard from you for a while. Um, what was your reaction to reading this comic? You've been critical of, of <laughs> Ryan Braddock's character choices <laughs> at times in the past. Did anything about this issue make you feel any better about his, his sort of character building at Excalibur? I think it's weird. Like, on the one side, it's a bit of a, a backslide for Brian in my eyes because it's a story about him screwing up as a superhero at a time when Davis in particular was really invested in reforming him from that. But at the same time, you could argue it's a, a leap forward from that because he learned something and is reflective and self-aware. But I also got this issue with him being portrayed as like an Oscar Wilde protagonist, this, this sort of <laughs> caddish Brian that we've literally never mm. seen before. Um, so like, I, I like the issue and I really like the art. Um, exactly. Exactly as Zach was saying, um, it's, it's it's kind of impressive, but I don't know. It just it felt like if you're telling a backstory, it should be of a character that we've seen before. And I've never seen this Brian before. Yeah, it's definitely not lining up with the version of Brian that we get in Marvel Team Up from 1978. I mean, there is the class contrast between the characters, but definitely not this CAD version of Brian that we get in this comic. Yeah, this comic is taking place in the 70s, but it's starring the Brian that was on the first page of of the Excalibur Sword is Drawn special. You know, or see, not I don't page, even see that though. I, you, you don't think? No, he's too playful. Towards the drunken Brian. I mean, I don't. I, yeah. yeah, I was gonna say he seems more youthful and sort of juvenile than that version of Brian, mm -hmm. who seems very more adult and haunted by his very adult trauma. Whereas this one is definitely a youthful right. sort of irresponsibility that I see coming across. I think that's mm -hmm. Lundell writing versus Claremont, though, right? Like Claremont's yeah, writing maybe. a guy who's tortured by the death of his sister. Lundell's writing. A guy with a drinking problem. We've bashed Libdell before, and I'm not doing that here. I know it sounds like it. I think this there's is some good dialogue. His, yeah, I think this is one of his better stories. Um, yeah. I, so, so, but I think that he's trying to situate himself in a version of Brian Braddock that um, I am trying very hard to not. You know, Claremont's gone, and he's not coming back. So I'm trying to not like lock myself into him here. I think this works in a lot of ways. Um, Libdell's going to be around on and off a bunch in the in the future and i can i can see in this story him like trying to lay some groundwork towards what can be an interesting story yeah and I, i'm i'm being as i mean I'm, I'm trying to not boil stuff in the future i think that he is doing a thing here and it kind of works for me even though i'm not sure when this happened or where and i have i have logistical problems with with some of the comic book logic of this story but um but i think that conceptually what he's trying to do is interesting well let's talk a little bit about the contrast between spider-man and brian and bring it kind of back to that context um i sort of had a question set up about our personal feelings about spider-man but i feel like we already kind of Zach just really kind of nailed it and i don't know if i have anything <laughs> further to kind of say about that about the appeal of spidey are but we certainly can comic, are you asking on a comic book show so does anybody like spider-man I know, I know. Well, it, I mean, it's one of these things, right? Even if he's not your absolute number one most favorite character, if you like Marvel comics, you like Spider-Man. Yeah, I'm sure yeah. there's somebody out there who doesn't, but as Zach said, he's the soul of the Marvel Universe, right? <laughs> I mean, Ben Grimm is my connoisseur's choice for soul of the Marvel Universe, but I mean, 
Spidey is the is the main choice for that. And I don't think you can kind of, I mean, you can't kind of argue against that. But yeah, let's talk about it in context of the contrast between Peter and Brian. And I'll give you first crack at it, Zach. I mean, let's go basic. What's Brian learning from Peter Parker? And how does this relate to the identity of Spider-Man? He's learning how to be an adult person, right? I mean... I, I think that I think you guys said it really well, you know, about sort of the youthful indiscretions that Brian Braddock is is experiencing here, as opposed to you know being more adult and haunted. And and, and Peter is is suddenly Uncle Ben, right? Where he's oh, yeah. <laughs> he's he's teaching this kid, this young kid, how to be or this young hero, how how to be a hero, how to be an adult person. And, and just as it started for Peter, you know, it's about first learning personal responsibility and, and being held to account for your actions, one way or another. And, and that's not. That's not unlike sort of the groundwork that we get in those first 37 issues of, of Amazing, you know, being held to account for the choices that you make. You make choices. You got to live with them. What are you going to do now? How are you going to heal and get better? Uh, I actually really like the dynamic between the two of them. I, I, and it makes perfect sense because so so often, especially in this era, I mean, I was reading a lot of Spider-Man at the time and like, you know, very often you get like the, the smarmy, you know, sarcastic Peter and you get that here too, right? At least when he's in costume, but there's a very sort of mature person in there that you can see, you know, like you said, is why he's sort of the heart of, of, of the Marvel universe, right? He's the heart of all of these things and, and helps them lead better, more heroic lives. So I, I really like the dynamic. What do you think about Spider-Man kicking Brian out at the end? That's a very that's a very Ditko thing to do. <laughs> okay, <laughs> it did occur to me when you were talking about Ditko. Yes. Yeah, that's a that's a very that's a very Ditko approach. Like, it's not I hate you. It's not your life is over. It's yeah, not I think you love. should be punished. It's you made some bad choices. Those bad choices are negatively impacting me in a serious way. You you have to go <laughs> until you get better. Right. I mean, that, that's a that's a very Ditko thing. You know, it's not it's not unique to him, but but that's totally in line with with the Peter Parker that comes out of the rubble in, in the Master Planner uh, story. Forgive, but don't forget. Yeah. I mean, I'm curious about the ways that the story also generates sympathy for Brian, though, because I did find myself feeling quite sympathetic to Brian. And I think part of where that hmm. was coming from for me is the intersectionality is not the right word, but just the way that they're struggling differently with similar but different burdens. And I'm putting too much on the story because I don't think it handles it in a real complicated way. But the way Brian is struggling with the burdens of heroism and Spider-Man's always struggling with the burdens of heroism and they're not exempt from those burdens just because one of them is rich and one of them is poor. I mean, they're dealing with similar but different burdens, like I said, right? And it doesn't make Brian more sympathetic than Peter. I think he's absolutely less sympathetic than Peter. But I was interested in the ways that this story generated sympathy by suggesting that there is similarity between them just based on that burden and getting some of the flashback to Brian becoming Captain Britain. And I mean, you see it a lot more in the Marvel team up issues. We get an extended flashback to Brian becoming Captain Britain there. And you really feel reading those issues. So I know I'm carrying forward a lot of that because I just reread those. So in the, in my, in my head, they're sort of all looped sort of grouped together now but you know we talked about it many times on this pod but we sometimes leave it behind because the comics don't address it that explicitly but the ways that brian is really conflicted about taking on this mantle of captain britain the fact that he wanted to be a scientist the fact that the reason he got to be captain britain is by choosing the amulet instead of the sword he is a character that struggles with burdens of heroism and burdens of masculinity and i am interested in those aspects of this story i mean you talked zach about peter teaching brian how to be a man and I was interested in that in terms of he's specifically teaching him something having to do with masculinity as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. And that's a that, you know that's it's an old timey notion of, of of masculinity too. And for whatever it's worth, I think that you if we're thinking about that in sort of those terms of masculinity and sort of the heart of the universe, one of the things I was just it just dawned on me as I was looking at these pages while you're talking is when they're in the coffee shop when they're at the coffee bean. Not only is Brian learning to be an adult, uh, you know, and an adult man from Peter, but he's also learning it from the guy that works at the coffee bean who seems to be pretty clearly Jack Kirby. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> You know that that they're getting that from sort of the the two folks who are the real heart and soul of the Marvel universe. You know, in Peter Parker and Jack Kirby, like you know, there's there's something there's something to that, and what the comics themselves comics themselves have to offer is sort of a meta text there. I mean, do we want to talk about the cultural specificity of either character? I mean, the fact that this is a <laughs> 
British CAD character learning about how to be a hero and how to be a man from this American character? Or is that almost too obvious of a question to ask? Too sophisticated a question. (laughs) Yeah, maybe. (laughs) That reading requires an intentionality that I don't think this particular story has earned to to apply it to the you know sort of the the class consciousness of you know the american upstart versus the you know british aristocracy colonizer i no, labdell didn't do that <laughs> yeah, um, i know <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. come on now <laughs> well, but, well well hold on give me give me a second because i think what i what i think he did do is i think he did make that distinction between the old guard prototypical hero that you just argued spider-man is versus someone at an earlier point in their career trying to become trying to fit the mold of what it is to be a hero i see him making that statement far more than i see him trying to say here's what britain can learn from america here's what the rich can learn from the working class i I just don't see him doing that particularly because i've read other labdell captain britain stories too yeah Yeah. like i just know like he would have if he's trying to do that that's not a, that's not something that gets carried through is my argument. I know. Even as I'm asking that question, I'm like imagining it as a bad conference paper that's reading too much into this and being like representations <laughs> of American and British identity in issue 53 of Excalibur. And I'm like, oh, it's. But yeah. read 54. And that's kind of, yeah, that's kind of my, that's kind of my, my flaw, my yeah. problem with that kind of a reading. But I do, I do think that the distinction's there. I think it's there in a tropey way, but not in a way that's actually commenting on these things in a sophisticated way. Maybe that's fair. The thing that I get hung up on a little bit is the way that Brian goes too far. Is he punches a lady too hard and injures her? But that's mm-hmm. kind of cheating, right? By writer's logic, because I would argue Spider-Man and Batman could do that literally any time they hit somebody. Mm-hmm. So. I don't know. There's there's a way in which it feels sort of contrived, this distinction between the two of them. Like, Spider-Man is immune to real-world physics, but Brian isn't in the scene. We well, Brian's, to... Brian's drunk, though. Well, is he or yeah. is he untrained, or is it both? So here's a... Well, he's flying crooked because there's he's drunk. There's no way to hit people he's... into walls and not hurt them. But spot like uh, Brian specifically tells them that he smells, you know, like alcohol when he shows up <laughs> yeah. at the Chrysler building. So I think he's supposed to be drunk. Uh, there's a there's a logic. OK, so as someone who has hit quite a few people in real life. Um, <laughs> wow. <laughs> uh, wow. I've I mean, I, it was my job. I was a professional wrestler. OK, yeah, um, of course, but that I, makes sense. <laughs> but I've also but I've also been in fights before when you hit somebody. Like pulling a punch is something you can do. You can kind of hit somebody light or you can hit somebody hard. But the logic that Marvel Comics always uses for Spider-Man of this man who can lift 10 tons is, you know, just pulling his punches so that he doesn't hurt the random, you know, bank robber when he punches him. That doesn't work. That's not a, you know, I can pull my punch so that, you know, maybe I don't hurt you. Like, so I'm not trying to break your skull if I punch a real person, but I can't pull my punch well enough to not hurt a baby if I punch a baby. Like I don't punch babies because I don't punch babies because that would hurt them, right? Like this is not a That's thing. That's the reason. No, well, no, for many reasons. But like, but, but, I mean, but, but but the point the point being like like we would never accept this logic if you were talking about like the reason we have problems with parents doing corporal punishment is it's damaging. Like you can't not injure somebody. Spider Man right. can lift ten tons. If he throws you into a wall, you should die. You don't because the comics need Spider-Man not to be a murderer. Same reason Batman. Batman's constantly knocking people out. That's a concussion. It should be a serious injury, but we don't we ignore it because we need Batman to not murder someone every time he hits somebody. So like mm-hmm. that's why we we make these distinctions. And then we're suddenly because it's convenient to the story we're suddenly not allowing brian that escape yeah like there's it's a breakage of physics but it's a breakage of physics because we want the story to work and yeah so it breaks the fourth wall a bit yeah but i mean it makes sense thematically in terms of brian is learning masculinity or yeah brian is learning masculinity from peter slash spider-man and part Mm -hmm. of that masculinity is learning the masculine art of control so i mean the power and responsibility (laughs) that spider-man embodies is the ability 
ability to not injure people with his tremendous power. And you're supposed to, to me, read into superheroic stories that he has superhuman control over his superhuman powers. And when supervillains in particular embody excess, they don't have that superhuman control over their emotions and over their bodies. And that's why their violence is excessive and more connotative of femininity versus superheroes, male <laughs> superheroes. No, like, I mean, that's true, though. That's like what you're supposed to read into it. Like he is masculine and superheroic in part because of his superheroic control, which is embodied by the fact that he is able to fight people and not hurt them. It's a lot to ask. Yeah. It's a lot to ask. Because also, because also... If I'm a superhero and Spider-Man typically pulls his punches when he's fighting, you know, Joe, the random bank robber, he doesn't pull his punches when he's fighting werewolf by night or when he's fighting, right. you know, he, he looks at Doc Ock and he says that is a human man with the with magic arms on his back. So I'll so I'll be careful. But Spider-Man definitely punches the rhino as hard as he can. Like, that's a thing that he does. And Brian has no reason to think that he's fighting a regular person here. He is fighting a superhuman being. It makes sense for him to do what he did. The story wants to make a big deal out of him hurting somebody on accident. So there's a lot of convenience that I'm willing to I'm willing to go on the ride because I don't think it's bad. So I'm willing to go on the ride and say, yeah, Brian did the wrong thing. But if you put any kind of like critical lens to wait a minute, why did he do the wrong thing? It starts to fall apart. But that's true of lots of times. Yeah, but so. it's also a little messed up because this is a story he's telling to Megan, who is a woman that he has abused. Uh, yeah, there's a, a couple things I want to talk about there. Woman. And uh, the first uh, thing that he says in this comic is on the splash page one, give it up, young lady, before you force me to hurt you. Oh, yes. <laughs> yep. And then you have to flip the page to know that they're just playing around. But uh, yeah, that reads a certain way, given what we yeah. do know about Brian being abusive. Not not my favorite joke. Um, <laughs> let's put it that way. And then obviously foreshadowing, given that he hurts Basenji. Well, does Labdell have to be tied into Claremont's vision of Brian as an abusive boyfriend? Which I know is weird because the story is sort of kind of hinting at it, but not entirely. You know what I mean? Like, So it, it's, the, it's the Hank Pym problem, right? Hank Pym hits the wasp. It turns out on accident. That's not what the script said. But, you know, now for here, from here on out, that's part of the storyline of Hank Pym. We can never not have him be abusive to his wife. Like, he can always atone for it. Is that this? I don't think it's the same thing because you're talking okay. about, like, one instance in Hank Pym's superhero career. Although I would argue that he has been emotionally abusive in other stories, yeah. but still. Sure. But still, with Brian, it's been a major part of his story for, like, 30-plus issues mm -hmm. of comics. So, I mean, okay. to ignore all of that, that's certainly not something you can ask of readers who have been reading this book right. since the beginning. Well, but I, but I'm my point is I don't think that I think that we don't ask readers to ignore it with Hank Pym. I think that when written correctly, Pym is a character with a tragic past who's still trying to do better and will spend the rest of creation, the rest of his time in comics, trying yeah. to atone for that moment. And I'm fine with that being the story. That's not the story here. That's the story here. The story here is we're supposed to acknowledge that Brian used to be an alcoholic. But forgive him or ignore that he hit his girlfriend because we don't want to feel icky about it. Yeah, it's a little grosser than that, too, though, because like the scene in the opening presents sort of rough play as foreplay between the two of them, mm -hmm. um, which is basically playing into that idea that, you know, Megan likes to play around with him threatening to hurt her and stuff like that, which is kind of screwed up it's an okay story uh, to tell, but, it, but it's hard from. to do in this story because of who he is and where yeah, yeah exactly yeah that continuity mm -hmm. you mentioned that's that mm -hmm. that's the hitch right i mean it's very similar to the scene that we had with them playing fighting flying in the issue where they go to the pub excalibur number 28 right. and yet i felt that it played very differently there in part because of the setup and the artwork and certainly it didn't open with a suggestive scene of brian saying i'm gonna hurt you <laughs> so i don't know it's like a similar concept but I think it's an example if you compare this scene to that scene how you can do the same concept and have it feel very different depending on the presentation yeah and, and the the person that he hits too hard when he takes it too far and is drunken whatever is is also a woman right mm -hmm. I mean he has a history of getting I mean drunk and beating up women and yeah. spiking us so you know so I mean it's it's hard to me and hearing you guys talk about this stuff because you know much more about the history than I do but it's hard for me to overlook that element of it <laughs> as well like and that seems to be part of the lesson with Spidey too, is not just the drunkenness, but you got drunk and beat up a beat up a woman. That leads to my question. Are we supposed to read this as Peter knows? Oh, yeah. Brian does Brian doesn't know <laughs> that Peter is Spider-Man. Yeah. We obviously do. 
And I think we're supposed to think that Peter's figured it out. Oof. I had that question too, but but I don't but I don't think so. Like I mean, I think it's playful and with the fourth wall and everything, because obviously it's talking to us as readers and we're privy to parts of the flashback that Brian isn't, you know, as a storytelling device, but I don't think Peter knows. It's I I, There's no wow. reason he has to. You, know, you think he doesn't? You think he it's does? A, it's then. the blonde British guy who shows up. Yeah. 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 There's no indication in the story that he knows. <laughs> yeah. Right. But Peter's, Peter's but but Peter is very comic book smart in general, right? Like Peter yeah. figures stuff out all the time in his own book because of the lot. I mean, one one of my favorite Spider-Man stories ever is it's amazing spider-man i'm gonna do this without looking it up so someone tell me on twitter if i'm right i'm gonna say it's like 279 289 somewhere in there it's spider-man versus the puma and it's where mary jane watson reveals that she knows that peter is spider-man and she basically does this thing of like please don't lie to me anymore i know who you are i've known for years i'm not an idiot that's how she acknowledges it in the comics and because obviously after so many years of you know ridiculous excuses she's just like yeah i've been letting you get away with it but i i'm i'm, I'm done and that's yeah. so maybe peter has just figured it out because yeah uh the day that this blonde dude <laughs> moved in the blonde superhero guy started hanging out with me but then there's convenience of you know it could just as easily have been new york's a big place right like anybody yeah, could be mm-hmm. like it, it's you know how come no one ever notices that clark kent and superman are in the same place at the same time i'm like because the same reason no one ever notices that me and joe biden aren't in the same place at the same time we're different people and there's a billion people <laughs> you know <laughs> like there's seven billion people on the planet i'm not in the same place as most of them that logic is weird but i i just i feel like we're supposed to think peter's figured it out because peter's a smart guy that's what i thought i don't think so but what do you think zach oh i, I think peter totally figured it out <laughs> oh man i'm the one who has the least belief in poor peter i don't know <laughs> i think he's too hung up in his own problems to to notice what's going on around him sometimes I'll be on your side temporarily, Anna. I think it works if he doesn't. That's cheating. He totally, he totally could just be kicking him out because I don't want to live with a drunk. That's right. That's reasonable. Yeah. In any case, um, let's move to some final thoughts about this issue because I'm sure there's stuff that we didn't get a chance to talk about yeah. that we might want to touch on. So I'll let you take first crack at it, Andrew. Anything that you're anxious to discuss before we leave this issue behind? Uh, if we take the dialogue out, like headcanon it out, we've got uh, an opening splash page of Megan in which she's not crying. Uh, and <laughs> that makes me happy. It's rare. It's rare. That's true. Oh. <laughs> I like this rendition of Megan. I mean, it's very different me than, no, than really Davis, like but I like it. Yeah. Gives her a good etherealness that I appreciated. Yeah, jubilance. Mm-hmm. How about you, Mav? Final thoughts? Yeah. Um. Did Peter have Brian deported? <laughs> <laughs> this is my problem with the uh, watery that. Okay, so my problem... And I made the joke in my intro about, you know, let's just talk about my my roommate whom I, you know, packed the bags of. And it's like, okay, so the logic of what happens here is Peter, whether he knows that Brian is Captain Britain or not, he has decided that he doesn't want Brian to live there. So he packs his bag, including packing a picture of himself and his girlfriend for him. <laughs> it's kind of that was it that was a weird choice but okay peter um peter packs brian's bags and has brian leave the country brian's in grad school like that's the story i was wondering if if you can i can kick you out of my house okay fine i'm kicking you out of chelsea street but like brian's still going to esu or he should be like why does brian leave and go back to braddock manor in london like that doesn't make any sense i don't know why i don't know why why he left (laughs) and then also like so like if peter wants to kick you out okay fine you are very wealthy you could just get a you know you could just go and get a hotel room for the night and then find an apartment tomorrow and figure it out like brian doesn't have to leave america and his college career he's going for his master's at esu that's why he's here that part made little sense to me other than the fact that we just needed to explain why brian wasn't around after those two issues of marvel team up i guess so but like peter shouldn't have that power (laughs) like i i don't i don't want to believe that he can get his roommate deported over drinking too much (laughs) well i mean the marvel team up story when they become roommates doesn't have a ton of logic to it other than the fact that it's sort of an I mean, I like the story a lot 
like I tweeted about it because I, I had I was like you know just tweeted like I hadn't read a Spider-Man comic in a while and I was like oh right Spider-Man the best it opens with a splash page like the intro splash page so the big exciting thing that opens to comic is Peter as Spider-Man explaining how he was so stressed about the meeting with like the head of the department that day at the university that he was up all night thinking about it and then he slept through it he turned off his alarm and now he's late and didn't get any sleep and I was just like oh my god Peter <laughs> just one thing after another and then he goes into the department and he's like oh man like am I going to be able to maintain my scholarship because of all these unexplained absences and then he's forced to take on Brian as a roommate because he needs the $50 a week to not go broke and it's just very very Spider-Man <laughs> it's a rare uh, instance of Chris Claremont writing Spider-Man so it's interesting on that level as well it's very Claremontian in certain ways but yeah definitely also those hallmarks of classic spider-man a little bit too identifiable sometimes particularly for those of us who have been grad students yes <laughs> but, um, i'll come to you for final final thoughts zach um i'll just do a couple of mine so when brian is narrating the fight with the litter and keep in mind that he is telling this story to megan and he describes how them transforming into dogs is the grossest and most terrifying and most upsetting thing <laughs> he's ever seen in his life yeah, Megan often transforms into a werewolf and in fact presented that way when Brian first met her. So that was a weird freaking choice. Tell us how you really feel, Brian. I can pretty screwed up. I can mm. fix that one for you pretty easily. Um Brian was Brian was creeped out by it then, but it has been implied several times over the last couple of years that uh Brian and Megan use her powers during their lovemaking. So yeah, he was grossed out for it at first, but he's accepted things about himself that are because of that yeah it was really missing a little line of him saying that was before i understood that it was super hot yeah that's <laughs> implied there you go <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for that zach final thoughts about this issue anything that you would like to highlight or spotlight before we leave it behind well i i really like this actually um as a as not an Excalibur reader. Uh, I, I like this quite a bit. And I got a hearty guffaw out of the litter. Just the very notion. <laughs> like, I was cackling in, in my seat, uh, in my computer screen. So I, I, I thought that was I thought that was terrific. And, and I think the thing I liked most about this is, you know, reading something like this, it's of a moment when I was really coming into my own as a comics reader and going to comic shop and making sure my parents spent money at the spinner rack at the grocery store and going to flea markets. And so there's just lots of things in here. And, and it, I, I'm not embarrassed to admit that the Love Dell did it for me. <laughs> you know, it, just, it, it, it was a very comforting read. It, it wasn't the greatest thing I've ever read, but it just reminded me of the stuff that that made me, you know, so invested. Some of the stuff that made me so invested in comics, you know, when I was when I was a kid. So I, I, I really liked it. It was it was goofy. It was silly. And I loved beating us over the head with Brian just clearly not getting it about the power and responsibility thing, like saying yes. it as though it's his own. I thought that was very... I love that. I thought that was very funny. <laughs> Peter could never know that I have even greater power and therefore greater responsibility. Yeah. Incredible. <laughs> like the lack of self-awareness in this, both both for the character and for Labdell the writer to just be throwing this out at, at, the, chi at the child reader so the child reader is not, you know, saying, yeah, we know. <laughs> it was just a great one i was so glad i read it i, I thought it was good dramatic irony I, I i appreciate his i appreciate his faith in the child reader to understand you know shakespearean dramatic irony yes absolutely <laughs> scott lovedell always talking up to the reader <laughs> that's right <laughs> what he's known for <laughs> All right. Just in closing, I'm going to just spotlight part of a letter from the Sword Strokes letters page. Um, this is from Robert Beecher. Finally, something is being done to finalize the Phoenix Force stuff. I've always said it's too dangerous for anyone to wield, and hopefully it will now be gone for good. <laughs> <laughs> oh poor robert uh, <laughs> let me tell you about echo <laughs> friends friends cool see you around spider-man
I guess we will wrap things up there other than to thank our guests dearly for joining us. And before we go, we need to remind our lovely listeners of your awesome exploits. If you would like people to find you online, Zach, where can they find you and what work or projects or other things of yours should they be checking out? Uh, so if you want to find me on the internet, uh, I am mostly on Twitter uh, and I am at my name, Z-A-C-K-K-R-U-S-E. That's my that's my handle for basically everything. So that's where you can find me uh, on today's interweb. Thanks for folks to check out. Uh, you know, I hope that more people check out Mysterious Travelers and come at it with an open mind and reevaluate how you feel about Steve Ditko and what you know about the Marvel Universe and, and the characters that we all care about so much. Um, those those are the big those are the big things to check out. My podcast is lapsed and you know things like that. So if folks want to look up older episodes, I did two shows. Oh, you know, I have a new thing coming. Okay, sorry. Now. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm just like I'm, I'm having a seizure over here. The, the caffeine's kicking in. So my old podcast or the podcast that uh, we did for several years is called Pictures Within Pictures. And it is me, my buddy Ben Teed and uh, one of our best pals, uh, comics writer Will Pfeiffer. And it was, uh, you know, we were releasing episodes about twice a month where we were doing sort of a book of the month episode and then a what you're reading episode. And then I also did a very limited thing in my last uh, moments at Michigan State University short run podcast called Prerequisites that was about academic stuff and teaching our research and um, finding new ways to explore complicated ideas, both as scholars and as pedagogues. So those are the two big ones. And then coming up, I have a, uh, I have a radio show that will be on rock in the suburbs podcast. It's like an internet radio thing. So um, I like all like monster music, like wow. monster kid music, like surf. So like lots of like surf rock and the cramps and um, you know things in the, things in that wheelhouse, uh, lots of Rocky Erics and that sort of thing. That sounds amazing! Congratulations! Definitely mm -hmm. interested in tuning into that. Um, thank you so 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 much again, Zach. I'm so glad to have been here. Thank you for having me. Next, in one week's time, we will be discussing Excalibur 54, Curiouser and Curiouser, in which the Alice in Wonderland reference is definitely intentional. Kurt scratches an itch, and <laughs> doo -doo -doo -doo, Alan Davis is back on writing and pencils. As always, we'll have a great guest with us to navigate new wonderlands. In the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please follow us, like, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it. Don't forget to check out our fabulous YouTube videos, which we've done for many episodes. You can find those on our website or the Vox Popcast YouTube channel as always if you want to chat with us about excalibur or pitch yourself as a guest for a future episode let us know you can reach out via our website goshgollywow.com where we've got lots of fun extras and via twitter at goshgollywow where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week and more fun extras thank you andrew and Matt, for another powerful and responsible conversation thank you zach for slinging through the past with us thank you all for listening and a special thanks to maximilian of thought for music for our truly epic theme song play us out so much, everybody.